When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Modern Homesteading Podcast, where we journey down the path of the modern homesteading movement by sharing the stories and ideas of homesteaders around the world. So whether you're just thinking about someday living the homesteading lifestyle or have been for many years, we want to help everyone homestead today for a better tomorrow. Well, hello there. I'm your homesteading host, Harold Thornbro, and welcome back to the Modern Homesteading Podcast. Here's a question for you. Have you ever thought about growing mushrooms on your homestead? Maybe you're already doing it, but uh, you're thinking about upping your game and uh, growing them as a cash crop. Well, we have a pretty good show for you today, then. Uh, On today's podcast, I'm joined by Mike Hatfield. Mike, along with his wife and young daughter, worked their homestead called Flyway Family Farm in southern Illinois, where they specialize in organically grown gourmet mushrooms, vegetables, fruits, and herbs. And with that, let's just jump into the conversation I had with Mike. Well, Mike, welcome to the Modern Homesteading Podcast. Oh, thank you. Uh, I wonder if you could take a couple minutes and just uh, tell us how you first got into homesteading and maybe a little about your homestead and uh, ultimately how you ended up being known as uh, Mike the Mushroom Man Hatfield on Facebook. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Well, you know, we've been, my wife and I um, have been on our farm about six and a half years now, and we originally met while we were at Southern Illinois University here in Southern Illinois, and uh, I was working on a a degree in forestry, and I was in school. I was always, I was never happy living in town and and doing the typical student thing, and so I was Mm -hmm. always renting little cabins out in the woods and having gardens and got into growing chickens, and uh, I think it was my, my first or second year down here, I I had uh, met some folks that were real into morel hunting and mushroom hunting, and that led to meeting another guy who was growing some shiitake mushrooms, and that's kind of how how I got uh, got involved with uh, with doing the mushroom thing. It's just kind of a hobby gone wild. And after graduating, my wife and I bought a little nine and a half acre farm and moved out here, and we've since since had a beautiful little girl and kind of things have just just kind of kept on rolling we now have you know really we do a little bit of everything out here Mm -hmm. uh the mushroom production is our our main thing that we do for commercial purposes that we sell at farmers markets and things but we grow oh a little bit less than an acre of organic veggies and we have a little orchard and do lots of fruit and uh, lots of fruit and veggies and Mm -hmm. um have about a Oh, probably about a thousand shiitake logs in our woods. Wow. And we have goats and uh, a horse that we're in the middle of training right now to start pulling a potato digger and doing our firewood hauling and all that. And 
couple of little Dexter cows and chickens and ducks and geese. And <laughs> into a little bit of everything there, huh? Yeah, hogs, bees, rabbits, you know, just about just about everything. We try to be as self-sufficient as we can. And so we, sure. Yeah, we've gotten, oh, we probably raise probably about 75 or 80% of our own own food. Uh, we do all ourselves. We, we haven't really gotten much into doing grain quite yet. Um, mm-hmm. So we still buy that from the store. but yeah, It takes a lot of room, yeah. Yeah, it's it's on schedule for this year, at least some really? small experimental. Well, I've seen, uh, I seen a post from you, I think, yesterday on your uh, uh, Facebook page that you started uh, tapping some maple trees or something. Am I right? Yeah, yeah. This is uh, the third year that we've tapped the trees, um, and our, our farm is kind of a mix. We've got a little pond and some open area, and we have uh, quite a bit of woods, and there's uh, a lot of maple trees in it. And, yeah, we've been... I think the first year we maybe tapped five or six trees and kind of get a feel for it. And last year we tapped 13 or 14 trees and ended up making, oh, I think about six gallons of syrup. Mm, oh, last wow. year. I've tapped, uh, only tapped about 15 trees right now. I have another 15 or 20 that I could do, but the way the, way the sap's flowing right now, we're, we've been pretty busy just with these 15 trees. We've yeah. already made a couple gallons and, uh, so I might just kind of turn that into a bit of a rotation, do kind of half the trees one year and the other half of the trees next year. That way they, sure. they get a little bit of their rest. Yeah, that's a pretty, uh, when it comes down to, to, to cooking it out, down and stuff, that's pretty labor-intensive. Uh, making syrup's pretty labor-intensive, isn't it? It is. It's, um, you know, we, we really don't have a good way of collecting other than, uh, you know, tapping the tapping the trees and letting them run into buckets and jugs in the woods and then mm-hmm. a couple day i carry a couple of five gallon buckets through and make rounds and pick it up and it gets tiring carrying 10, 10 gallons of sap out of the woods a couple of times a day and uh you know we usually have the pots cooking you know as long as we're up like i turn them back on and in the morning as soon as i get up and and pretty much let them go until i am ready to fall asleep at night and it's kind of yeah, as long as the weather is good it's a non-stop yeah, it can be. I think we were cooking syrup almost nonstop for a month. I was going to say it's kind of a it's a long process cooking it down and get it refined. A lot of people uh, just stick with the uh, the sap itself, uh, or just thin it down just a little bit and use that. I've heard of a few people doing that. Yeah, well, we do. Yeah, this time of year we drink a lot of the sap just straight. Mm-hmm. It's oh, it's incredible. It, it has a, a real subtle sweet mapley flavor to it, but it's just. I mean, even I call it the the life force drink. I mean, if you, just, <laughs> you, you drink that stuff and man, it invigorates you. It's, it's delicious and, and it's great. Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds like though that mushrooms are your main thing though. You got a little bit of everything going on, but so you say that mushrooms are the thing that you uh, maybe make the most money on or that you, for commercial purposes, or that's what you grow. Yeah, really kind of, kind of just started out as a hobby doing some shiitake logs. Um, and then that progressed to, trying all sorts of different things on logs and then beds and, you know, oyster mushrooms and the wine cap mushroom and lion's mane, things that we can grow both on logs and on wood chip beds and, and straw beds outdoors. Um, and it was about two and a half years ago, we started selling some of them off of the logs and uh, put together a, a pretty cheap little makeshift indoor room to try to start growing oyster mushrooms indoors. 
on straw and started doing some some small markets, but we've been upgraded that quite a bit since then, and um, and that's that's mostly what we sell at, at farmers market now. We do um, sh- shiitake, mostly shiitake and oyster mushrooms year-round indoors. Uh, and starting to get into doing a little bit more uh, some of the more specialty mushrooms like the the king oyster and lion's mane mushrooms and uh, namaco and fiopino, a few other few other kind of specialty gourmet mm-hmm. mushrooms. Um, it's been great, you know. It's kind of a a void that that we kind of stumbled upon uh, in our our area as far as a, a little market niche. Um, it was hard trying to get into farmers markets just doing the produce. Right. Yeah. Everybody's everybody's always has the same things for sale there. The, yeah. I've I've told people that before. If you really want to make money at the farmers market, you know, bring something that not everybody else is bringing. Yeah. And you know, there was there was a time when we were looking at possibly expanding our goats and doing doing goat milk and and cheeses and soap, but it was looking like you know several tens of thousands of dollars to get a commercial grade uh, dairy and, mm-hmm. and creamery going and the mushrooms were always a, a bit of a passion and uh, you know they've they've really been a part of our life uh, ever since my wife and I met you know our, our first dates were going out mushroom hunting and uh, so it was just kind of a, a bit of a logical t- choice um, sure just kind of a hobby that snowballed a, a bit out of control. That's all right. That's all right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I first ran into you on Facebook uh, when I was, I'm thinking about uh, growing some mushrooms myself and uh, you know, I'm, I've been around them a lot in the sense that I've, you know, foraged for them and stuff, uh, you know, but I've never grew any. And uh, you were, you were uh, kind to come on and answer a few questions for me uh, in a, on a thread one day and uh yeah this i think what you're doing is great though you got uh, how many varieties are you growing right now oh gosh it, you know it really changes during the season one of the things we try to do especially with our indoor operation is is to switch up our our strains and the varieties so that we're not in the winter we don't heat our room we just the mushrooms produce quite a bit of heat themselves um, so we do cold weather things in the in the winter so that we don't have to heat the room. And then mm-hmm. in the summer, we do some of the more tropical varieties so that I, I still have to cool the room a little bit to keep things in balance. Um, but that allows us to, to only cool it minimally. Um, but we grow oyster mushrooms, shiitake mushrooms, lion's mane, wine cap, namico, piopino, uh, medicinal mushrooms like reishi and turkey tail. Uh, we grow mayatake um, every now and then we grow things like enoki mushrooms. Um, trying to think what else. What yeah, else that's quite a few grow. already. <laughs> yeah, king yeah, oyster mushrooms. Yeah, just really a little bit of every, a little bit of everything. We grow pretty much most most of the edible mushrooms, uh, except your your typical button mushroom. The mm-hmm. Typical button mushrooms are. Are, uh, Hard to compete with those. Grown on compost, and pretty much everything we grow is all tree-loving mushrooms. So we're able to grow it on either sawdust or cellulosic farm waste, like straw or cottonseed holes or corn cobs. Uh, the oyster mushrooms are great on, okay. on yeah. agricultural waste like that. Uh, yeah. What kind of what kind of uh, uh, logs do you usually use? Is it oak or? We do a, a big mix. Um, probably half of our logs are shiitake logs, or oak logs for mm-hmm. the shiitakes. 
And then the other half are a mix of mostly maple and cherry and a little bit of hickory. And that's most mostly because of that's what we have in our woods. Um, but I, I really like doing the mix. The, some of the softer hardwoods, like, like the maple and the cherry, mm-hmm. will colonize faster and produce bigger crops of mushrooms sooner when they're grown on the logs than um, the, the exact same mushrooms grown on a harder wood like, like oak. Mm-hmm. Um, that just kind of helps spread our ho- harvest out a little bit. Um, you end up getting a little bit more mushrooms over the life of the log with oak logs because it has that nice thick protective bark and it's real dense wood. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, the the same size logs, uh, if it was an oak log with shiitakes on it, it would the typical log lasts between five and eight years, whereas um, a similar sized log, if it's maple, will only last three or four years. Okay, that's something um, I was going to ask you. I was wondering how long you could use the, the same logs for, uh, how long they would yeah, keep producing. A couple years. Once, once you inoculate them, they're inoculated, you really don't have to do anything else to them other than harvest mushrooms. You can do things like soaking the logs mm-hmm. to force fruit them throughout the year. Uh, but we found the, you know, the, the easier way, at least for our log production, is to mix up the tree species that we're using Plus, we grow on our logs. I, I think right now we have 13 or 14 different varieties of shiitakes growing on, on all those logs, and some of them are cold-weather strains, some are warm-weather strains, some are wide-range strains. So they, they all have slightly different uh, temperature temperature ranges that they'll fruit it under. And so that really allows us to not have to worry so much about force-fruiting the logs because um, that can get... It can get tiring carrying logs around and right. filtering in the tank and doing all that. Sure. And, um, that's one of the big reasons we also have, have moved most of our mushroom production indoors. It's, you know, instead of taking a year to two years before we get a crop of shiitakes off of a log on, the, on sawdust, it only takes us uh, seven or eight weeks. Mm-hmm. A, a much quicker turnaround. Do you just have to uh, water them down occasionally or keep them moist that way or when you have them inside? Yeah. For the most part, we really just kind of leave them and, and let them fruit with Mother Nature. Um, there's been a couple of times when we've had some severe drought where I'll have to water them. Um, but the way it is now, I, I really don't have an irrigation system set up for the logs. I do mm-hmm. I do have them set in an area that is just on our, the edge of our woods, which is on the backside of... Uh, a dam and it's lower than our pond and so I'm able to siphon water out of the pond down into the woods to some holding tanks so I can soak the logs if I need to force through them. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, we really just kind of stack them up and, and let them do their thing. Now, I was just wondering them. about the ones you bring inside. You say you grow some of them in a building. I was wondering how you... Oh, yeah, yeah. Those ones, they already have all the moisture in the substrate that they need. Okay. Uh, but the room is kept at about 90 to 95% humidity, and it has lots of fresh air coming in, uh, and all that air is filtered, and the room is kept kept really, really clean. Um, and so mo- mostly it's just creating the, the ideal environment for them to fruit. I'm kind of curious about that. How do you, uh, how do you maintain the humidity in that room? Well, um, I've found, you know, they, they do sell some, large-scale kind of commercial-type misters and, mm-hmm. and foggers. But I found the, the cheapest and, and the best thing, at least for us so far, since our room is kind of small, is um, 
is actually just a, a setup using ultrasonic pond foggers, and you can buy those on on uh, Amazon or all you know just about all over on the internet. Okay. And they're they're just these little ultrasonic foggers that you buy to to put in ponds to create kind of a smoky fog effect. Okay. Um, but by doing that, I'm able to run those in a, a tub of water, and they produce produce the fog uh, and atomize the, the water molecules into vapor, and I just have a fan blowing over that to to kind of spread that throughout the room. Okay, that'd be a good place to uh, start your vegetables, too, probably, if you get some light on them in there in that, in that room with that kind of humidity. Yeah, it, it could be. Um I've been thinking about putting putting some uh, orchids in in the room. Actually, mm-hmm. you know, you run into some issues with plants being in there with uh, bacteria and other weed fungi right. um, or insects if, if the substrate's not real good and clean. Um, but I do have. We're in the process of, of renovating. We we had been using it as a barn, but really it was just a detached two-car garage, um, and we're renovating that and turning that into our new mushroom house, and I have plans to to build a, a seedling greenhouse, kind of a lean-to type greenhouse on the south side of that barn structure, um, and I have plans, at least a theory in my head that hopefully it'll pan out where I can cycle that humid mushroom air through the greenhouse because the, the mushrooms create a, an awful lot of carbon dioxide mm-hmm. and one of the things that's critical for them to grow indoors is to keep those carbon dioxide levels low so that the, the mushrooms grow properly and I, I have this idea in my head of having the, the exhaust air from the mushroom room going into that greenhouse and kind of using the, the plants in the greenhouse as a carbon scrub to then soak up that CO2, release oxygen, and then I can bring that air back in to the mushroom room, but it'll maintain some of it. It'll ma- hopefully maintain its temperature and humidity a little bit better instead of just pumping all that humid, temperature-controlled air straight outside. You use the use the plants to kind of filter the air. Uh, right. Yeah, so almost like a, yeah, just a symbiotic kind of... Uh rotation between the two almost like a, a aquaponics setup but in the air that's kind of neat right yeah well and that's a that's another project we have we have a uh, a pretty good sized hoop house that we have and last year i built built our first aquaponics system um out of a, a 275 gallon ibc tote and it worked pretty well for us um it eventually failed mostly i think due to um, just me not keeping a, a good enough eye on mm-hmm. on things, um, but it worked real well for a while. But we're gonna we're planning on expanding that a little bit this year and and keeping up with that. It's a another real cool, real cool thing. And last year I had just caught a couple of catfish out of our pond and put it in. Yeah. Uh, but this year we plan on I I think what we're gonna end up doing is some yellow perch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A little more well, the, the catfish are pretty hardy too, but the perch as well. I know they a lot are. of people do the tilapia, but where you live, where I live, it's just not usually a, an option you can run with uh, for too long. Yeah, anyways. yeah, and I, yeah, and I, I just, I'm not too keen on the idea of having to heat the water in there right. in the early spring and late into the fall. Sure. 
aquaponics is a, a pretty hot topic right now. Everybody seems to be getting into it, but uh, and it's for good reason though. I mean, it's uh, it's kind of change, changing the landscape on a lot of gardening issues, you know, that, that we've had in the past. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I, I think talking about expanding that a little bit. I mean, I from everything I hear is the larger you go, the the easier it actually gets with aquaponics. That's my understanding too, and you know, and I haven't really noticed it because we've only had the one system and mm-hmm. only had it running for one season. But if it's, I've had fish tanks all my life ever since I was a kid. And if it's if it's anything like fish tanks, yeah, the the larger the system, the easier it is to kind of maintain homeostasis. Sure, and if you can, you know, and and I know if you can really uh, take advantage of of uh, of everything with the aquaponics and like the fish waste and everything and really take advantage of, of what you get there for your fertilizers and things like that. I mean, they're, they're really worth uh, putting the time and energy into if you really take advantage of them. Uh, yeah. I watched some uh, videos there once in a while. Those, uh, you've probably seen them, the urban farm guys that's, that's in uh, Kansas city, Missouri, I think. Oh yeah. And yeah. Uh, they, they got a pretty neat setup for their aquaponics and their filtering systems and how they use the fish waste and stuff. And uh, it's pretty impressive really. It is, and you know what I really like about it is, it seems like you can go as as low tech as just one tiny little pump and letting gravity do do most of the work mm-hmm. for you, um, all the way up to you know, really making it high tech with all sorts of swirl filters and doing NFT type hydroponic channels, uh, you know, and really kind of getting into it and. Um, I really like that aspect of it. That's one of the things I really like about the mushrooms too is you can you can do it really, really basic and low tech or you can go all the way to having a completely environmentally controlled room to grow things in and mm-hmm. I like I really like having having things set up so that we can do both of that because it's you know, we, we do. We get a lot of bad storms around here and There'll be times when we won't have power for a week, and it's nice to still have things growing, even if we don't don't have our electricity. But but when everything's working well, it's it's nice to be able to really pump things out when we have the the convenience of of the grid. So sure, to speak. yeah. When it's your money crop, you want you want to have both options available <laughs> to you for sure. Right. Now, now when you uh, you sell your mushrooms, do you just sell them at the farmers market, or do you have some uh, uh, connections to some market, uh, some uh, retail establishments, or anything like that? It, or? We've, we've, the last couple of years, we've mostly been doing farmer's markets. Uh, we have a small CSA. Um, a couple of years ago, we did a full CSA where we were doing vegetables and, mm. and eggs, mushrooms and everything. Uh, right now, we've uh, kind of scaled that back. A lot of work, our, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, vegetables are mostly just for us and, and trading. Um, but we still have a, I call it our shroom shares. Uh, it's, it's just a mushroom CSA where folks, you know, send same setup as a as a typical CSA, except you're just the members are just getting a, a variety of mushrooms each oh, week. Wow. Um, but then majority is is through a big market that we have locally. That's actually a, a really great market. Uh, this this year coming up is going to be the 40th year of this farmers market here in Carbondale, and I, I believe it's one of the longest running markets in in Illinois. Oh wow. Um, but most of that, we sell a little bit. There's a, a neighborhood cooperative grocery store, and we sell to them. We sell to a couple of couple of small small restaurants in town. Um, as we expand things, we'll probably probably be adding a couple more farmers markets and uh, really increasing our wholesale type mm-hmm. type 
orders to supply more restaurants and more grocery stores and things. Well, the CSA is pretty interesting. I think you're the first guy I've ever heard of doing a, a mushroom CSA. I've not heard of that before. That's pretty neat. It is. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of specialized, and there's, there's, to be totally honest, there's not a huge market for it. It's kind of some of our uh, real loyal customers uh, that are a part of it, some of whom are either vegetarian or vegan, and so mm-hmm. they make mushrooms part of their diet because it's, you know, they're loaded with protein and all sorts of vitamins, and they're a great meat substitute. Sure. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, I, a lot of people wonder about CSAs and getting into them, and that's what I found out. You know, some people think that it, you, you know, unless you have you know a, a, an acre of, of organic vegetables, you shouldn't do a CSA. But there's a lot of people, even in urban settings, with uh, you know small shares and just dealing with just a few people that run CSAs. You know, and and it's it's a pretty neat way to go about selling your vegetables, and um, you know you don't you don't have to be huge to do it. Right. That's that's kind of what what got us started with it was it was mostly, you know, uh, the first the two years we did the CSA, we were real real small. I think uh, the first year we had just under 10. I think the second year we had 13 or 14 members. So real, real small CSA. Um, and honestly, you know, it really wasn't a, a big profit kind of thing, mm-hmm. but it, it definitely paid us for our, our time in the garden and, and really helped with those big seed orders that, that come up in January sure. and there's not a whole lot of cash flow going on. And, right, and so, right. Well, I've always yeah. try to encourage people any way I can that are doing homesteading because, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, the more time you can put into it, uh, the better. And to do that, sometimes you, you need to pay yourself something. I mean, you need to find a way to make some kind of an income where maybe you don't have to work right. a 80 hour a week job somewhere to pay for your homestead, you know? So I'm always trying to find a new ways, not just for others, but even for myself, you know, there's always ways you can make a few extra bucks here and there on the homestead, you know? Yeah. That's, that's what I really liked about doing the CSA was it did it, it, you know, we were going to be spending all that, you know, the pretty much the same amount of hours in our garden, no matter what, mm-hmm. and having having five or 10 members help pay for things really helped, you know, kind of bridge that gap and it helped cover the cost of not only the materials, but our, our time in the garden. And so it wasn't, not that growing vegetables is ever really a loss because what you're mm-hmm. eating a huge high dollar value to it, especially if you're doing things organically, if you would put that into in terms of what you'd be spending buying that at farmer's markets or at the store, it's a huge huge money saving. Oh yeah, even if you never sold any, it'd be it's worth doing. Absolutely. Oh yeah. But it it really helped, you know, help kind of pay for that that time that we we're spending doing mm-hmm. that. Absolutely. Now do you ever are you ever thinking about ever getting into uh, like shipping some of your medicinal mushrooms or anything like that? Or are you just always going to sell those locally? Uh no we have thought about that. We've you know that was kind of when we first started doing the mushrooms, we were mostly just focusing on, on the edibles and mm-hmm. the, the medicinal ones have kind of just come up organically. Uh, mostly we had grown them for ourselves and cause we make extracts and, and take them ourselves mm-hmm. uh, and started sharing them with some friends and some neighbors and they started getting hooked on them and really liking them. And, you know, we were really talking about how it was, you know, especially like the reishi mushroom, how it was really helping some of our neighbors uh, 
with their arthritis issues and things like that. And, yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. What are kind of the, some of the medicinal benefits of those? Just arthritis. Yeah, um, and... uh, yeah. The you know they they really run the gamut. The um, for instance, the reishi mushroom is just incredible. It's an anti-inflammatory, so it's great for inflammation and arthritis type issues. Um, it's a bit of an energy booster. It's uh, a lot of these medicinal mushrooms are are being shown in study after study to have anti-cancer effects and mm-hmm. anti-tumor effects. Um, they help moderate blood pressure and cholesterol levels. Uh, they're, they're finding that they help um, keep blood glucose levels in check. Um, they help modulate the immune system. They have a, a real interesting way of of kind of bringing everything into, into homeostasis where if you have an underactive immune system, they help bolster it and, and help bring your immune system up to a healthy functioning level. But they're also good for people with conditions where their immune system is overactive uh, and kind of can kind of help bring it back down to a, a more normal functioning level. Um, and so it's, they've, they've been a huge help to us and uh, people are, are really liking them. And so, we actually just put in a, an order for a whole bunch of bottles, and we're getting some labels made up, and we're going to start taking those to market. Um, oh, wow. I might eventually start start offering them for sale on our on our website and things. Yeah, I think that would be uh, that'd be great. I think a lot of people take advantage of that. Uh, I know, I've heard I've read a lot about the uh, like detoxing and stuff like that with mushrooms, and how they're even in the environment. They have like a uh, they can be used to to uh, to clean water, clean the earth. I mean, I've even heard about yeah. like around Chernobyl and stuff how it's cleaning the radiation out of the the ground and, and the air right. there. Right. So. They do. There's just incredible things that they do. Uh, in per, in particular, the oyster mushrooms, which is one of the main mushrooms we grow because it's, it's so aggressive. We just grow it on pasteurized straw, wheat straw, but it grows on cottonseed holes mm-hmm. and grow on air corn stalks. Uh, phone books, newspaper, just about anything, uh, but it does. And it, the, these mushrooms excrete these enzymes that are designed to break down lignin and cellulose, and which are really, really stable uh, molecules. They're, um, and they, they also have the ability to break down polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, which means they, these enzymes can break down dioxins, DDT, uh, PCBs, petroleum products. Uh, they were doing experiments with them to help bioremediate and, and break down oil from the Gulf oil spill. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, and then, like you said, around Chernobyl, there's been a lot of talk. Um, if anybody's interested, there's a, a mycologist named Paul Stamets, and he's got several books out and does lots of, he's got several TED Talks out there and, and a lot of information on online. Um, but they're, you know, I, I don't know if, I don't remember if they're actually doing it, if this was just something that he was proposing, but they tend to bioaccumulate heavy metals and radiation. Mm-hmm. And so he's talking about things like in Chernobyl or after Fukushima going mm-hmm. out, basically inoculating the landscape with these, these fungus, and they would then bioaccumulate the radiation and, um, concentrate it into the fruiting bodies and so they're pulling it all out of the the contaminated soil accumulating it and concentrating it in the fruiting bodies in the mushrooms and then you can have your your guys in hazmat suits come through and harvest the mushrooms and 
I don't know what they do with them at that point and incinerate them or blast them off to the moon or whatever. <laughs> but but you're at least concentrating it and, and using that as a way to draw it out of the soil. Sure. Uh, but yeah, but just all sorts of things. I mean, some of these mushrooms, the oyster mushroom and the wine cap mushroom, are both uh, shown to um, feed on bacteria like fecal coliform and E. coli. So they're good at uh, at filtering water for uh, you know, like in the instance of runoff coming off of agriculture fields from mm-hmm. pastures, heavily used pastures. Um, they're uh, the oyster mushrooms excrete an enzyme that stuns and basically paralyzes soil nematodes, and then the the fungus will go in and eat and actually consume soil nematodes. The wine cap mushroom grows these little microscopic snares that will capture nematodes, and then they'll digest them. It's just, uh, you know, the the more you start learning about mushrooms and, and fungi, the more amazing things you constantly yeah, learn. Tru- truly is amazing. Now, I guess with all that, though, the way they absorb, that you'd really have to be careful in what kind of an environment you were growing them in and eating them because it would uh, take on the, some of the properties of where you were growing them for sure, wouldn't it? Yeah, to a, you know, to a certain degree. Um, like, I, like I had mentioned, uh, one of the few things they do is they will accumulate, bioaccumulate heavy metals mm-hmm. and radiation. You have to be careful about that. Um, what's nice about them is the way that they digest their food is it's it's entirely uh, extracellular. So they're excreting these enzymes, breaking the substrate, the food source down into uh, available nutrients, and then reabsorbing that. Okay. And so they they do have a, a they way of fix it before right? they take it back. Yeah. Exactly, and that also also makes them really beneficial. Uh, for instance, in, to grow them in mulch layers with vegetables because mm-hmm. they're breaking down these mulch layers, excreting these enzymes, breaking things down. And what's left over is plant available nutrients. And so there's all, all sorts of studies coming out where they're uh, trialing doing asparagus and corn and all sorts of different vegetables with inoculated mulch layers. And they're realizing anything from, I've, I've read varying numbers, but anywhere from 40 to 60% increases in yields uh, with things like asparagus and tomatoes and wow. corn, that's uh, impressive. <laughs> yeah, plus you get you get tasty little bonus mushrooms coming up out sure. of your mulch layer. Amazing how when all this is working together, and, and I guess that's why I like about permaculture, just working all these things together, and how you just really maximize, uh, you know, your your just how everything is working. You know, it just it when you plant the right things together and grow the right stuff around each other, everything just it goes to the to the extreme, right? Yeah, really maximize things, close all those loops, and, mm-hmm. and get everything working for you. Yeah, yeah, amazing how nature can is better at doing the things that we think we do. <laughs> right, <laughs> uh, that's great. Well, it sounds like you got a, an awful lot going on there. I mean, it does sound like you're the right guy to to talk to when it comes to dealing with mushrooms for sure. You've been doing this for a little while, and it sounds like it's uh, kind of took you in a little bit and uh <laughs> it yeah it definitely has yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well what would you say to, to someone who's the, you know thinking about growing mushrooms but maybe they're just a little intimidated because maybe they've never done it or they just think maybe it's a little too complicated would you, you recommend they jump into something like that yeah you know really the the that's the great thing about mushrooms is it's a really easy thing to just start um mm-hmm. you know if you're trying to get into a commercial scale just like anything you run into all sorts of other issues of 
trying to do things to their maximum potential. Uh, but it's real easy. There's a lot of companies and um, most most small farms uh, when they're at farmers markets. If you ask them if they're not already doing it, a lot of them can make small ready to fruit kits, especially with oyster mushrooms. Um, there's lots of companies out there like Fungi Perfecti and Field and Forest um, and several others uh, that you can purchase spawn for mm-hmm. and have great little kits for growing mushrooms. I mean, you can. You can grow these oyster mushrooms on straw. You can grow them. Some of these companies sell little kits that you can uh, pour boiling water onto a roll of toilet paper and inoculate the toilet paper and have mushrooms growing off of that. Um, yeah, I've seen people they're, growing them in clothes baskets in their house, like in a basement or something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly. And so they're they're really easy thing to get into. Uh, make it a little bit trickier, you know, when you're trying to do things at a commercial scale, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't, you know, not everything has to be done on a commercial scale. It's real easy to get going. Yeah, you have to start small, for lo- sure. Yeah, inoculating logs is an easy thing to do. Um, it's it's the sort of thing where you can read and read and read about it, and you'll think you have a really good understanding, but really the best thing to do is to just jump into it. Yeah, I've found that with most things. You, it's, you can do a little bit of research, and that's always good. Watch a few videos, read a few books, but it, ultimately you just have to do it. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, yeah, the, the fastest way to learn is to make those mistakes. That's, that's right, that's possible. right. Uh, <laughs> maybe you got somebody around you that can kind of guide you along that's done it before and already made those mistakes, but if you don't, you just have to jump in there and do it. Absolutely. So, right. Well, uh, I'm going to... Uh, put a couple links on my uh, the show notes uh, for your Facebook page and your website. Is there any other way uh, people could get a hold of you if they want to? Or um, I think my phone, you know, my phone number and email and all that should be on both of those sites. Okay. And this is the part where modern technology let us down and we lost our phone connection, <laughs> but I called uh, Mike back a few minutes later, just to end our conversation. And, and uh, he said his contact information can be found on his website. I'll I'll have links to to Mike's pages in the show notes. I also put the link to the TED Talk with Paul Stamets that uh, Mike referred to in the show notes. Uh, Those notes can be found at smalltownhomestead.com. Thanks for listening. To see the show notes for this podcast or listen to other podcast episodes, go to smalltownhomestead.com. There you can also read our blog, connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, and take advantage of the many resources we make available to help you along in your homesteading journey. Please share this podcast and help us to carry out our mission of helping others to homestead today for a better tomorrow. Mm-hmm.